preparation for today's message, we shall be reading from the book of John, chapter 4, verses 16 to 26. Again, that is John, chapter 4, verses 16 to 26. Please open your Bibles to that portion of the scripture and join me in reading God's word. Let us all rise in reverence to the word of God. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true, the woman said to him. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us these things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Praise God for the reading of his word. You may now be seated. A warm and pleasant good morning to all of you who are here in the hall. Morning, and to those who are listening and those who are watching via the different online social networks, uh, pleasant and warm good morning to you as well. Allow me to start the message this morning with an important question. The question goes like this Who is the triune God to you? Who is the triune God to you? When I say triune God, I'm pertaining to God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit, three persons as one God. And so why is this question very important for us to answer? That who is the triune God to us? This question is important for us to answer because our love and fear of the triune God, our faith, our worship depends on who He is to us. In other words, the level, the depth of our love, our faith, our fear, and our worship of the triune God depends 
if we have a personal relationship with Him, or if we truly, genuinely know God, who He is, what He has done, what He is doing, or what He is going to do, is dependent on our answer. So shall we pause for a moment and just commit this time to the Lord in prayer? Heavenly Father, again, we humble ourselves before you. We acknowledge that apart from you, we are nothing and we cannot do anything. Yet we are thankful, Lord, for the privilege to read your word, to study your word, to apply your words in our lives and also the privilege to teach it, to share it to others. And so, Lord, this is my personal prayer that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and be glorifying to you alone. We commit this time of study, of reflection, and of learning to you. May you be glorified in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we continue with our series in the Gospel and the Book of John. But allow me to just backtrack a little bit. Uh, we are still in Chapter 4. This is like a sub-series of a major series. We are now on the third uh, uh, preaching or message on the time when Jesus met and encountered and uh, by his design, by his appointment, the Samaritan woman. So in the, the two Sundays ago, we, we have learned that Jesus left Judea and went away again into Galilee. So from Judea, Jesus and his disciples are going to Galilee because it's not yet time for Jesus to have a personal encounter with the religious leaders on, on, during that time. And so in verse 4 of chapter 4, he had to pass through Samaria. So from Judea going up to Galilee, there are other routes, but Jesus chose, he had to pass through Samaria. I believe God has a an important reason, a purpose why they had to go through a place where there is tension between them as Jews and the Samaritans along the way. And so he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. I'm reading I'm using the NASB version. It was about the sixth hour or the 12 noon. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now, it's interesting that the writer of this, uh, this book specifically mentioned on the 12 hour, 12 noon. And... Uh, Perhaps, perhaps, uh, because during that time, it is their custom that the women would get water from this particular well, either in the morning or uh, late in the afternoon. 
Now, it's interesting that this woman went there to get water at 12 noon. Well, it could be that uh, perhaps she was avoiding uh, the Marites of their time. I'm sorry if your name is Ma Mare or, or Tess. Uh, let me change that. Uh, perhaps she is avoiding the gossipers during that time. And so he, she would want to go there by himself or the time when there are no other women who are going there to take water. And so that was at 12 noon. Uh, perhaps because of public shame or just because she just wanted to go there and, and uh, be by herself. And so verse 8, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Verse 9, therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, as Jesus asked for a drink from her, how is it that you being a Jew ask me for a drink? Since I am a Samaritan woman, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. They have this animosity. They have this tension between them. Now, one of the reasons that they have this such tension is because for the Jews, uh, these Samaritans, they kind of tweaked or changed a little bit the Pentateuch. So they believed in the first five Gospels, yet the Samaritans, they changed a little bit the facts uh, of those five books. And so this is one of the reasons why there is this discord between them. And of course, culturally speaking, the Jews looked down upon them. And the Samaritans, they looked to the Jews with with a little bit of uh, maybe anger because they feel that itong mga Jews na to, they are kind of mayabang and they're kind of uh, uh, boastful because of who they are. And so Jesus answered and said to her without answering the question why Jesus was, was asking him a drink, if you knew the gift of God and who is it? Who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given given you living water. So this is critical. Uh, I started with this because I believe this is important for us to review and important for us to revisit before we go to our main text today. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Verse 11, she said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Verse 12, you are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. So there's now a tension, a struggle, and, and the, the, the Samaritan woman is, is asking, are you greater than our father Jacob? Meaning, she was, she was perhaps no, uh, asking for the authority of this man talking to, to her and telling her that uh, uh, he, has, he would give uh, living water to her. 
And Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water, pointing to the water and the well, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. So Jesus spoke of this living water. And of course, in our previous studies, uh, we knew and we have discussed that the living water pertains to Christ. Uh, the commentary in the ESV and uh, John MacArthur uh, comments that the living water pertains to the, Holy, to the Holy Spirit. As Jesus would later on talk in uh, chapter 7 about the living water pertaining to the Holy Spirit. But allow me to just add to this by saying that the living water that Jesus pertains to here, he's talking about the nature of salvation. The nature of salvation. In verse 10, Jesus said, If you knew the gift of God. So the nature of salvation is it is a gift. It is free. It is given by grace. And it is of God. It is from God. I remember my wife told me uh, several weeks after my birthday, she, she asked me, did you get the free pizza that, you, that you, you're supposed to, to have uh, on your birthday? Because there's this, uh, of course, pizza parlor who gives uh, free pizza on the birthday of their members. So I said, no. So why? Because I did not know that there is a free pizza. So there's this free food, there's this free pizza. But because I did not know that there's a free pizza on my birthday, I was not able to avail of it. And so the salvation through Christ is a free gift of God. And in verse 10, and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, and you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water, the source of this eternal life, the salvation is none other than God himself through Christ. And so the response is to ask. So if I could, if I knew, so this is the first premise, that there's free pizza, and then I went there and asked for it, it will be surely given to me. Such is the salvation, the nature of eternal life through Christ. It is from God. It is something that we are to ask for. And when you say ask for, this is not out of our own free will. Why? Because this is even the grace of God. Because the knowing comes from God. The knowing that there is this free gift of salvation to Christ also comes from God. That the knowledge, the knowing comes from Him. And so it's all by His grace. And if we ask, if we have 
uh, ask for it, he would have given you the living water. And so the woman in verse 15 said to him, in a some form of a certain level of understanding, Sir, give me this water. Why? So I will not be thirsty. Because Jesus said that whoever drinks of this water from the well will be, we shall, we will be thirsty, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. And so the woman's reply response was based on that. Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. So when the woman of Samaria asked for living water, interestingly, Jesus did not immediately give it to her. Where is this? What, give me this, this water, sir. As a form of a respect to Jesus, sir. The Lord instructed her to call her husband. Now, in the first, uh, uh, I mean, the, the, the two Sundays ago, when, when Pastor Ed started to, to expound on this, I believe he mentioned the divine appointment. And one of the, one of the, the applications that we had, as I, as I remember, in that preaching is to go out and as Jesus broke the barrier of indifference, the barrier of culture and racial difference, we are to also do this, right? And so Jesus would break this barrier. Now, at this particular point, Jesus is breaking the ignorance of the Samaritan woman. In our main text today, Jesus would break her sin. And so before Jesus gives this living water to this woman, Jesus would expose something that is of great concern about this Samaritan woman. And what is this? This is about her relationship with someone who is not her husband. So Jesus tells her, go call your husband. She admitted she did not have one, and the Lord confirmed that she was telling the truth. The Lord demonstrated that he knew who the woman was by asking her to call her husband. Of course, Jesus, although he is 100% man, he's still 100% God. And as God, he is omniscient, meaning he knows everything. We have learned this when he told Nathaniel that in, in chapter 1, that I saw you before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree. And Nathaniel was amazed. And that caused him to say, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. 
In chapter 2, the last portion, in verse 24, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them for he knew all men. He knew the hearts of these people. He knew the hearts of these Pharisees. He knew the hearts of all men. And obviously, he knew this Samaritan woman. So the Lord demonstrated that he knew who the woman was by asking her to call her husband. Now, some of her former husbands may have died. Or she was, take note, probably a victim of an abusive system of shallow reasons for divorce. But the present partner showed she was in sin. Now, in what I've learned in, in, my, in my studies is that in criminal cases, the direct testimony of a witness is equivalent to circumstantial evidence. So this means that when there is no particular witness who will testify to a particular crime, like, for example, it's a, it's a murder, it's a rape, so the person uh, was, the, the victim was killed in the process, so no one will testify against the, the perpetrator because no one actually saw the crime happen. And so the court now will look at circumstantial evidence as equivalent to direct testimony. Circumstantially, if there's more than one circumstance and if the, the, the facts you know, that are, are inferred to and, 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 and it's produced and, and it's related to the circumstance and it is enough to convict that particular accused of proof beyond reasonable doubt, then that circumstantial evidence becomes like a direct evidence. Now, let me read verse 16. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have, meaning the sixth man in her life right now, is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now allow me to just sidetrack a little bit and just say that during their time and even in our in our jurisdiction in our in our time today having extramarital affair having conjugal relations outside marriage is number one contrary to public policy it's contrary to the law now the family code uh, speaks that Marriage is the entry point. Marriage is the gateway to conjugal relations and family life. So it's, it's the marriage between them and a man and a woman in accordance with the law that gives the privilege you know, to, to every person, the spouses, the husband and the wife, to now have conjugal relations. When you say conjugal relations, this is a physical union and sexual relations between the husband and the wife. And so conjugal relations and family life starts with marriage. 
Now, of course, we, we know this, that uh, the law was given to put boundaries to the, to the, to the citizenry. Right? This is to put order. Because the, 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 the policy of the state is to provide peace and order. And so that with regard to, to relations, that there should be peace and order, it must be that it is in accordance with the law. It's in accordance with marriage that one has to start his or her conjugal relations with another person. Now, why is this so? Because if there is a fruit, meaning there's a child born out of an unlawful relations, now that's why common law here in the Philippines is not recognized meaning yung living in with another partner who is not your husband or your wife is not recognized here in our country. In other words, it is against public policy. And so it is illegal. Why? Because when uh, there would be a fruit out of these relations, out of this relationship, of course, number one, there would be a strong negative social impact to the child because of the law labeling it as illegitimate. He or she will become an illegitimate child. And that illegitimacy bears a social impact, negative social impact, and a, a legal impact, particularly on the rules on succession illegitimate child. So there will be disorder and the, the, the state wants to put everything in order so that there would be no chaos. And so the rules provide, the law provide that marriage governs should be the starting point of conjugal relations and of course of family life. Now more importantly, of course, moral law says that it's contrary to, to public policy, yung, yung conjugal relations outside marriage. But more importantly, under the divine law, under the law of God, such relationship is a sin. So if you're here today and uh, this passage speaks to you that you are living not only in a relation, in a relationship which is contrary to a public policy, but more importantly, under the law of God, such relationship is a sin. Allow me to just gently give you a wise counsel. Number one, decide to either separate if you believe that this, this person is not the one for you according to God's will, according to God's word, then separate. If not, work it out. Find a counselor. Talk to your church leader and undergo pre-marriage counseling. And so you can work out your, your relationship and hopefully you will decide to get married. And because you trust God and because you have faith in Him, you will submit to the mantle of His sovereignty under His blessing 
that you will submit your relationship under marriage, under biblical marriage. So if you are here today and this message is speaking to you, work out your relationship. Uh, perhaps you may need a pastor, perhaps you may need a counselor to do this. And so you will be freed from the bondage of this circumstance, which is against the law of our land and against the law of the Lord. Now let me highlight that this woman, perhaps, no, he could, she could be, her husband's or previous husbands may have died. Or she could be a, a victim of an abusive system. So it's not really in the, in the text that this woman is living a lifestyle of immorality. Why? Because later on uh, in the subsequent verses, she would be listened to by other Samaritans. They would respect her. And they will listen to her as she would share about this man who has changed her life. Now, if you would ask me, Doc, did this woman eventually marry the, the person she is living in with? Because it was not stated here in the text. But I like to believe she did. Out of the inferences that we can make as we go through the whole context. But what is more important is that the woman said to Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. The woman perceived Christ to be a prophet. A prophet is considered a seer who sees the future, who knows things more than an ordinary person. And, listen, someone authoritative to speak about spiritual things. And so, in a way, Jesus would say that indeed, I am greater than Jacob. I am greater than your fathers, or the forefathers. Yet she will discover that Christ is more than that. The woman would now move to a topic uh, we, we, can, we can more or less observe the progression of, of her faith uh, and how she spoke to Jesus, how their, their conversation went. So the woman now would move from a physical topic. So in verse 15, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. So meron pang tinge or taint of physical or lit literal meaning no? or... or, or uh, sense. Yet in verse 16, you know, after Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And then she said, oh, in verse 18 and in verse uh, 19, I, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. She will now change the topic. No, not, that, not really change the topic, but she will shift the topic into a more spiritual side. She will Talk about worship. Verse 20. Our fathers, our fathers, not your fathers. So there's this critical dividing line no? they maintain. Our fathers worship in this mountain. And you, pertaining to Jesus and the Jews, 
People say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So the woman moved to a topic that divided the Jews and Samaritans as to the place of worship. Was it in Jerusalem or was it in Mount Gerizim or Gerizim? But the Lord answered that these arguments do not matter. Why? Because true worshipers must now worship in spirit and in truth. So Jesus will now explain that it's not about the geography. It's not about the place. Now, worship is not about where you are worshiping. It's about two things. One is about who you are worshiping. And secondly, it's about what a true worshiper is. So who is to worship? And who is that true worshiper? So can you look at the person on your left and on your right? Not to judge that person, but... Uh, is this person truly a worshiper of the true God? Because worship is not about the style or the form. It's not the way how to do it. It's the who we worship. And it's about who is what the Bible speaks of as the true worshiper. Meaning to say, other than this, Everything is false worship. And it's absolute. Verse 21, or verse, yeah, verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, woman, believe me. So if you have your Bibles with you, and if you have your highlighters, your pens with you, you can underline that word, believe. With an authority not only of a prophet, but of God. He says to this woman, believe me. What to believe? The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship who? The Father. Verse 22. You worship what you do not know well, Jesus perhaps is speaking of because they don't have the full Old Testament. They only have the five Pentateuch uh, with them and pinalitan pa nila ng konti. So, you, you worship what you do not know. You don't know who really God is. And so, indirectly, it could also pertain to someone who is worshiping a God whom he or she does not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews, meaning uh, salvation is from the Jews, that the Savior, the Messiah, will be coming from the Jews. The law is given to the Jews, and the salvation, as prophesied, will also be a, from the Jew, and the Savior will be a Jew. Verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. 
two elements of what true worship is all about. Spirit, in spirit, not the Holy Spirit, but the in spirit, the one who is worshiping, and truth. Why? For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Although the Lord explained that it would not matter, Christ emphasized that salvation comes from the Jews. But the real emphasis in this particular text was explaining who God is, the object of our worship. God is spirit. And the way to worship God is in spirit and truth. Therefore, only true worshipers as we answer that question, who is that true worshiper? Those born of the Spirit and those who believe in the truth can worship God. Outside these two elements, it's not true worship. A true worshiper must be born of the Spirit and we have learned this in chapter 3 with the question of Nicodemus being answered by Jesus, unless a man is born again in spirit, in water, heavenly birth, not a physical birth that is literal, but a heavenly birth where we have no control of it, just like the, the, the physical birth, we don't have a control. It's passive, no, we can we don't cannot will it on our own. Being born of the spirit is by the work of God alone. So unless a person is born of the spirit and believe in the truth, the truth of what? The truth about God, the truth about Christ, the truth about who He is. And one can never worship God. So for himself or herself, he or she might be feeling or saying, believing falsely that I am worshiping God because I am praying, I'm singing worship songs, I'm serving God, I'm obeying even God. But unless that worshiper is born of the Spirit and believe in the truth. In chapter 1, Jesus talks of himself as the truth. And later on, we will learn that Jesus will also say that I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's about God. And those who are born of the Spirit, those who believe in the truth, can worship God. Now, the third point, the woman did not respond to the reply of Jesus to her question. But she expressed her belief in the prophecy that the Messiah will come and that the Messiah will explain the truth. Because these Samaritans, they also believe that the, the Messiah will come, that there is a Savior that will also save them. And then the Lord revealed himself as the Messiah. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, 
He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Which means, this Messiah will reveal to us everything that we don't know of yet. In verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Now the Lord's reply was direct and emphatic. The Greek text, I who speak to you am he, am he, does not include the he. To be exact, the answer was I am and not I am he. So the original Greek, this particular answer of Jesus to the Samaritan woman is I who speak to you am. In short, I am. And of course, when Moses asked who was speaking to him through the burning bush, we have learned this, that God said, I am. And this name, I am, will be a common name that Jesus will pertain to himself as we continue our study in the book of John. I am the bread of life. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the Messiah. I am the Savior. Though it was clear to the woman that the Lord gave living water, she did not immediately see him as the Messiah. But here's where Jesus would break her ignorance and even her sin. Christ would reveal himself as both Messiah and God. Salvation is through Christ alone. No one else, nothing else will give the living water. The living water is a free gift of God. Initially and progressively, this woman understood as she started asking from Jesus this living water to be given to her. Yet Jesus would first deal with the sin that she has. Perhaps one observation or one question that we may get from this text is, when did this woman believe in Jesus? When was this woman got saved? Was it when she asked for that living water? Or when she repented of the sin and realized that, yes, it's, it's, it's wrong, it's sin, and I will correct this, and I will, and I will, I will uh, well, married of that person, though it was not in the text. Well, I like to say that it was the moment that she believed. It's only God who would know that. So in application number one, believe, not merely perceive. The woman perceived Christ to be a prophet. And many of, many people Perhaps they would even know who Christ is. 
they know that Christ was born sometime in Christmas time, December 25, 12 midnight. She was born somewhere in the manger in Israel. Well, she died on the cross. He died on the cross. Many people would, would even know that Jesus resurrected. However, we know that he's much more than a prophet. He's much more than a seer. The Samaritan woman's believing was progressive. Progressive. And perhaps some of us may also attest to this, that your belief was actually progressive. You did not immediately surrender your life to Christ. You did not immediately believe in, 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 in who He is. And what he's, He has done is sufficient enough for us. So it became a progressive as you read the Bible as, as, as you listen to the Word of God, as you, as you meditate upon His Word, as you listen to, to preaching, and as you go through life and experience difficulties. But the important thing is, she eventually learned that Christ was the Messiah. And such a Wonderful, great privilege and grace by God alone that, that Jesus would reveal himself. God would reveal himself to you, to me, to us, to a person that he is indeed the Savior that we need. So unless a person is given that realization by God himself, that he or she is a wretched sinner, that he or she cannot save himself or herself, that person will never come to Christ. And such is the grace of God that he would reveal that to us. That we need a Savior. And that Savior is Christ alone. Therefore, we must believe who Christ is as the scriptures reveal him to us. Brothers and sisters, my prayer is that we would know Christ on our own. As what the scripture says who he is. Not hearsay from another person. Not from your parents or for your children, not from your siblings, not from your, your pastor, not from your growth group leader, not from your friend, not from a stranger, but from the very words of God himself. As we study, as we read, as we meditate on who Christ is. I understand that we don't have a physical idea no, of who Christ is because he's not here with us. That's why it is by faith alone that we can believe who he is, what he has done and what's going to do. Second application, worship in spirit and truth. Again, no one can worship him 
in spirit and in truth unless they are, unless we are born of the spirit and believe in the truth. What is the truth? The truth is about Christ himself. It's about who he is, who he claims to be, and everything that he taught, everything that he did, everything that he's going to do. True worship is also led by the Spirit of God, which comes from deep within our spirits. So it's not our emotions. It's not the way how we sing, the way how we worship. It's about who we are worshiping. It's about us as a true worshiper. And lastly, proclaim the gospel. Jesus said that he was the Messiah, but he spoke it in such a way that resembles the Old Testament name of God, I am. Therefore, we must proclaim the gospel. Last Sunday, we, we have learned the importance of having a clear gospel, knowing what, what the true gospel is all about. It's about the death of Christ. It's about his suffering. It's about Christ being slain as the Lamb of God, being perfect and the only means to be saved. It's about his resurrection from the dead. It's all about him. It's all about Christ. And therefore, we must proclaim the part of that gospel, letting people understand that Christ is God. Allow me to share, as I close, the poetry by our beloved senior pastor, whom we will be praying in a little while for complete recovery and healing. This is entitled, True Worshippers. The Samaritan understood progressively all that she could. When the Lord became personal, making her know what's eternal. The woman perceived a prophet. More than that, he was the prophet. He is Messiah, which is much more. Christ is the I am to the core. In spirit and truth, we worship. It is much more than fellowship. Only those born of the Spirit, the Lord's truth, they do believe it. Worship is not about the place. It's also not about the race. True worshipers, the Father seeks, born of Him of whom the Lord speaks. Shall we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, we are humbled by your words today. Forgive us, Lord, if 
we have sinned against you. Forgive us of our sins. Thank you for your great sacrifice. You gave up lordship. You became man. Yet you are 100% God, omnipotent, all-powerful, and omniscient, all-knowing. Hence, we cannot run away from you. We cannot hide from you. We cannot cover our sins. We cannot cover up our sins with good works. We cannot justify ourselves with our generosity, with our spiritual disciplines, even, Lord, with our worship. For these are nothing before you unless by your grace, through faith, through Christ alone, we are reborn. So Lord, we repent of our sins. We surrender these sins to you. Yet for us who are struggling in habitual sins, Lord, we ask for your mercy. It's only you who can change our heart. It's only you who can give us a new heart, a new mind, a new life. It's only you, Father, who can give us eternal life. Today, Lord, we surrender our sins, our guilt, our shame, our frustrations to you, believing fully, truly that it is you who gives the living water, that it is you who forgives. It is you alone who can free us from the bondage of our sin. So Lord, we surrender and we believe fully to you who you are, what you have done, what you are doing and what you're going to do. Not on the ground of other, peop other people's perspective or knowledge of who you are, but only on the ground of your word as you revealed yourself through scriptures. And so, Lord, give us the grace, give us the strength to know you more 
that our love, our fear, our worship, our faith would deepen. And we would increase and it would mature because we have a personal relationship with you. Because we personally know you. And because we personally believe in you. Thank you, Lord, for the example of the Samaritan woman. That in spite of her being a Samaritan, despite of her ignorance of who you are, and despite of her sin and her shame and her great concern, you have reached out to her. You have revealed yourself to her. And you've given her new life, eternal life. So this is what we also ask, Father, from you. Illumine our minds. Take away the scales that blinds our eyes, the sin that is a barrier from us to you, to come to you. Thank you, Lord, for your great work on the cross, that it is through your death and resurrection, such sin and its consequences are indeed broken. And that is what we believe in, Lord. And that is what we will preach and teach and share to others and proclaim to the world. We worship you in spirit and in truth because of what you have done. You have given us rebirth. You have regenerated our minds, our bodies, and our spirit. And it is you alone that we glorify. So Lord, we honor you and we glorify you in our lives, in our family, in our work, in our business, in everything that we do. May you truly be glorified. This we ask and pray in your great and mighty name, the I Am, the Messiah, the living water, the Word, the truth, the life, and the way alone to God be the glory in Jesus' name. In your name we pray. Amen and amen. God bless us all and see you po next Sunday.